Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Brianna Hernandez, who is a PhD candidate at Florida International University, committee member for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and a WWF Panda ambassador, which is my personal favorite of that list. She is interested in language, power, conflict, environmentalism, and overcoming false binaries. So welcome, Brianna. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. I feel like we're going to have a fun episode because we've actually met before as well. I feel like this is going to be a theme where it's just Laura speaks with people she has met at different conferences. But I love that. Yeah, which is totally fine. But yeah, I, I first saw you presenting your work at North ISA Northeast, I think in Providence. And I remember being on the edge of my seat and wanting to do like fist pumps and stuff because you were talking about gender and conflict and I was so into it. So I'm very happy I've got you to answer all of my questions today. And so the first question I want to ask you is more of a trailing sentence as is right for academia. And that is to binary or not to binary, because I understand you're all about binaries and whether they should or should not be used. Yeah, wow. Okay. Trailing sentence. We love that. Well, I mean, for one, just binaries in general are really at the center of all the different kinds of work that I do. So when we're talking about binaries, we're talking about really just, you know, having systems that only recognize that things exist on two axes, right? You either are a yes, no, male, female. There's nothing that really is gray. There's nothing in the in-between. But all the exciting things happen in the in-between, right? We exist in the in-between. Um, so... Kind of a simple answer would always be, you know, not the binary, right? Because that's what a lot of my work is doing, is trying to complicate that story. Also, when we're thinking about gender binaries, we're talking about two distinct opposites, which also just don't really make sense in the real world Mm -hmm. that we live in, and that tend to lead to a lot of hierarchy, a lot of oppression. But to complicate things like a little bit, two binary can also be useful when we're talking, because it is true that People of different identities that exist in different positions do experience the world in different ways. And they're impacted by events, by conflict events, by environmental disasters in different ways. So understanding the world and events as gendered does help us a lot of times to work on conflict reconciliation, to work on reporting mechanisms even. So Sometimes the binary can be helpful in practice as long as we understand it as something that is artificial and as something that we're only using to meet some type of transformative goal. It makes total sense because what I hear you saying is that on the one hand, these binaries are made up. On the other hand, we need to understand that people act as though that were real and that gives them a different lived experience depending on which position they occupy, right? But what I hear sort of talking about now when you related gender specifically to hierarchies is it reminds me of that idea of dominator culture, which I think might have been Jackson Katz originally. This idea of not only is there a hierarchy, but one person has power and the other person doesn't. So it's dominant and submissive. So in your work, how does this gender hierarchy specifically relate to conflict? Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples here, but when, so when you said dominator culture, I'm thinking then about fear and force, right? How does fear and force play out in these spaces? How are they employed and weaponized? 
Um, so I look a lot at sexual and gender-based violence in public spaces. Um, and right, we can take that in two ways. We can think about kind of international conflicts or ethnic conflicts or things that we would consider very political, very international relations, right? But we also see these narratives play out in the domestic space. So you have a lot of domestic violence literature even that is also looking at, you know, the role of fear and force at home in the private sphere. So I think something that's important here and something that gender lets us do when we apply that as a lens is to look at how violence is conceptualized and then used across public and private spaces when we think about conflict and how violence is not just one thing, right? If I punch someone, we know that is violent, but also if... For example, in the domestic space, if I'm in control of your finances and you cannot go to the grocery store without my okay, that is a form of violence. In the same way, well, in a different way, but kind of in the same lane, if we think about this in a more political sense, right? If you are a prisoner in a village, I have taken over your village and I say that you are not allowed to interact with your family unless I say that you are allowed to interact with your family, that is also still violence. And it's a very gendered form of violence if I separate mothers and children, for example. So I think Something that a gender lens really does that's important when we're thinking about fear and about force is allow us to talk across spaces, which allows us to connect experiences across realms, which I think is extremely important. Um, but it also lets us kind of complicate and problematize fear and force, right? So kind of general narratives are usually, well, I am a woman, so I must fear. You are a man, so you must force. But using kind of a gendered lens, using feminist theories, we're able to really complicate that idea and say, well, maybe fear and force is not just a person that does these things, but it's a process. And maybe that process can exist across this non-binary spectrum and people who exist at all places on that spectrum can act as the force or as the person who is fearful in those situations. So I think it just really, it lets us complicate kind of what is dominance, what is violence in the complex space, whether that's a domestic space or a more political space. And so it sounds like this lens and this problematization actually really helps us, as you mentioned, the domestic space. So for example, understanding that men can be victims of domestic violence and have force applied against them, as opposed to always seeing it the other way around. In a recent episode I recorded with Laura Emia of Conciliation Resources, there was a bit of a stress upon peace building processes being inclusive as it relates to genders and other binaries. But you've actually written a paper which is called Sexual Abuse in UN Peacekeeping, the problem of viewing women as a quick fix. So how do we know that women are being seen as a quick fix in this kind of context? And also what problems does that cause? Sure. So let me preface by there is some really great work academically and on the practitioner side of the ways that bringing women in has built more transformative and lasting peace. I'm not saying that that's not a thing. There are really useful forms of gender mainstreaming that can be really transformative, but then there are really basic forms of gender mainstreaming that are kind of let's throw in some women and stir the pot and see what happens and call this gender mainstreaming and call this a gendered peace building. And that just does not work. It's not useful. And that is historically the kind of gender mainstreaming that we see in UN peacekeeping. So how do we know that this is viewed as a quick fix? There's plenty of literature we can go back to and look at talking about kind of the development of adding women into peacekeeping groups. There's stats that tell you how many women from each country, all these kinds of things are accessible. Um, 
But I think what's really telling is when you get these narratives and stories out of the UN saying, oh yeah, we've done it. We've gendered peacekeeping. We've done this great thing now, women and girls, because of course, women and girls as a concept and, you know, parentheses always together. <laughs> totally um, unproblematic as well in every way. Oh, oh right. Of course. <laughs> um, this is fine. But, you know, we are, we've created peacekeeping units that act as protectors and models for women and girls in the zones that we're working in, right? So when you have an institution that's really gung-ho and tooting their own horn about something, and then you go in and you look at the stats and you're like, well, something here is not adding up, right? That's kind of where this came out of was the fact that you had an institution that was so publicly proud of the type of gender mainstreaming that they were doing that it's like, oh, cool. Like, what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn that this isn't the way actually to be doing this kind of work. Um, so, I mean, for one, if you're looking at from the side of these women who are peacekeepers, right, you have this sort of double double burden. So they're coming in as the protectors of women and girls, as the people who are supposed to be especially equipped to respond to the issues of women and girls in local communities. So you have them coming in like this, but then you also have these same women who have to protect themselves and each other from sexual and gender-based violence in their own spaces, from other peacekeepers, also from community members. So we have this double work. They're also still doing the whatever mission work that all the peacekeepers are doing. And then they have the extra, well, oh, we got a call and there's this girl and she has to report this thing. We have to send a woman, right? Or this is, this is just your job. And then you also have, which is what what really made me angry, actually, is you have this language where you have these women who are, you know, there who are doing this amazing thing in these local contexts, but who are also supposed to be babysitting their male counterparts. Do so you have this language in these narratives that say, well, when we add more women to units, then maybe the men will behave better. And there's just something so fundamentally wrong with that. One, placing the burden on these women to babysit their male colleagues, to thinking that just the presence of women will be enough to change an entire culture. So we have also studies that relate this to within the military. Oh, if we add women, does that mean that we're changing the culture or that we've just added them into a culture that's already hyper-masculine, right? The same kind of language happens within peacekeeping units where it's, well, are they babysitting or is there some thing that happens where now you actually just added a layer of protection or scapegoating for men who are misbehaving, let's say. So it's, it's really an interesting place there because then you can look at kind of institutional and sociological dynamics within units, but then also how this is played out in these zones that are trying to reconcile, they're trying to build back, that are recovering from conflict. I think that answered your question. I kind of got lost in my own kind of rambling. <laughs> no, it, it was fantastic. And especially the point you made about women are failing at babysitting if their men misbehave. It's ludicrous, really, right? Anyway, but I mean, not to be all what about men, but I do know you've done some research on men as victims of sexualized and sexual violence in conflict, because I saw you presenting about that at IAC Northeast when I was on the edge of my seat. And so how does it actually relate to gender hierarchies? I mean, what work have you actually done there? Yeah, um... Actually, I think I might be able to answer this better in telling you a story. So I was guest lecturing actually in one of my friend's classes and we were talking about identities and I was there to talk about gender. And one of the students after a very long kind of 
I'm prefacing my question with, I do not hate women and I'm all for equality says, but what about men? Because it's not all men. And we hear not all men all the time, right? So it was really interesting to watch so many of the women identifying students have facial reactions and like just bodily reactions to this comment, right? And so I had to take a breath before I answered because I have all of these women students who are looking at me like, what are you going to do about this? And I had to, I guess, crush them a little bit with not just jumping directly into the defense they thought was needed. And I had to say, you know, okay, like I hear you, right? It's not, we can say not all men and that is fair and that is a factual statement, right? And then I asked for him to hold his question and let me do like a little demonstration. So I asked everyone a series of questions and to raise their hands if they've ever experienced um, whatever the question was, right? Do you lock your car door as soon as you get into it? Do you hold your keys between your hand when you're walking alone? And he had to sit there and watch the women in his class, people that he spent the entire semester with, raise their hand one after another. So then this opened up the conversation for talking about gendered experiences. And I actually used the paper that you're talking about as my example to lead into that. And I was like, you know, you're completely right. It's not all men. And what gender and what feminism allows us to do is not just to complicate hierarchies and dismantle them, but also to build them in different ways. So what we did together then as a class is build kind of an opposite hierarchy from the one we would generally talk about. And we talked about female perpetrators of violence, and we talked about male victims of violence. And I know... Some of the stories that came out of that Northeast paper are quite graphic, so I'm not going to go kind of into specifics there. But I always turn to, for example, Sierra Leone as a great example of where men have experienced heinous sexualized violence. And it's so hard to even see reports of this or to see how reconciliation was supposed to happen in a way that was actually helpful to these survivors because we couldn't even code things correctly, because we didn't have the languages and we didn't have in our questionnaires and reports are like institutionally, we just don't have these questions in our reports that allow us to say, well, this man who was forced at gunpoint to commit an act of violence is also a victim and not necessarily a perpetrator. Our international definition of rape at the ICC doesn't allow us to name these things. So what gender then does here and what feminist lenses and theories can do for us is say that this entire population, because of the way we understand hierarchy, is completely invisible. And that's what that paper was trying to do, was unfreeze those narratives to make more people visible. Because how is it that we can talk about conflict reconciliation if we cannot even talk about all of the different types of lived experiences of the people who went through that conflict? I think there's something really powerful in what you've just said because you really neatly illustrated that this hierarchy of gender and gender binaries in this case plays out on that domestic level and sort of the the day-to-day lived experience of women with with car keys between your fingers and so on and it plays out and has the same kind of power in these deeply violent conflicts in a way that disadvantages everybody from the personal basis to the broader societal basis so Probably good we're working on taking it down, right? And so let me then ask you about your doctoral research, because I understand you're still using feminist lenses there, but you're doing something with environmentalism, which is a bit different to violence against men. It's quite different. Yeah, that 
was a journey. So I kind of came into the PhD program very much focused on the traditional understanding of a violent conflict space. So somewhere where different armed entities had tried to kill each other and take over territory or whatever their goal may have been. And kind of ended up looking then more at human rights and human rights violations in those spaces and then very much interested in the institutions that are working there. And throughout all of this, you know, gender and feminism was spread all the way through. And then I was getting to the point where, okay, well, I really need to pick a topic for my dissertation. I can't just keep doing all of these things that I like, that I'm interested in and that I like to do just because I like them. You know, I have to do something. So I was trying to find the threads. So who do I want to be as a scholar, as a scholar activist, as someone who wants to work in spaces where transformative change can happen, right? And human security, human rights, and feminism were always that nexus. That's where it all comes back to for me, is really complicating hierarchies and identities and really looking at the role that language plays in all those spaces. And then as I was continuing kind of reading and looking at this, I got my activism side. So you mentioned like Panda Ambassadors. I was extremely involved with World Wildlife Fund, and I started noticing that within that space we started having conversations about gender and about identity and how these things play out in conservation or don't play out in conservation and I was like huh I wonder and because you know cynical because you know I come from the looking at the conflict space I'm like hmm, how much of this is a lie like oh how how deep is <laughs> I this love that it's you all know? lies which <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm Probably sounds pretty terrible, but you know, I'm like, you're like, I'm looking for things to be angry about, right? But no, I just really like, how deep is this depth of commitment, you know? And so then I started to realize that all of this, all of these organizations, NGOs, different institutional entities working in this conservation space are now all of a sudden women's rights activists too. And I was like, wait a second, when did we marry, you know, environmentalism with women's equality like how exactly did this happen when did it happen whose idea was this is it working does it mean something on the ground so these questions started coming out and then after a lot of reading and back and forth with my major professor I've arrived at the point where my dissertation then is looking at hierarchies and identities and the construction of gender and the construction of right this entity that is women and girls within the conservation space. So still looking at human rights, still looking at kind of that human security thread when we're thinking about environmental degradation, disaster relief, but very much questioning still identity and hierarchy, right? So like, where do these things happen? How are they happening? And is this transformative at all? Like, is adding gender, is this a add gender and stir, like with peacekeeping? Or is there something more meaningful that's going on here? And what can we learn from it? I don't know yet. And that's what I'm excited to keep looking at. Is there a thing that could exist that is a truly, you know, non-essentialist feminist environmentalism? Hopefully, mm. maybe, I guess we'll find out when I write this dissertation. <laughs> and that's kind of where I ended up. So definitely just still with the hierarchies, still with construction of gender is something that's really important. But I guess like the, the environment just kind of added in from my more activist side is where that came from. I had this vision of you with pandas in the jungle, like, but, you know, getting them together. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're there with your pandas. We're talking about gender. Like, I really have this vision to be doing this. Like, 
That's that would be amazing. Can we have like a circle of pandas while we discuss dismantling patriarchy? Because that yes. would yes. Please. Oh my god. Please. I mean, I feel like in the interim, I would take a circle of puppies. I feel like that's more easy to accomplish than pandas. I, I hear at least one of these is an endangered species. <laughs> So I'm not sure we can play with them. True. I think we can work with puppies. Well, good, because I feel like otherwise the WWF will listen to this and be like, we can't let who near pandas anymore. Yeah, wait a second. Hold on. <laughs> we might need to investigate this further. Laura and Bree are planning on like kidnapping some pandas for this circle that they're talking about. Well, I mean, I don't know how many pandas there are in Florida. I'm pretty sure there aren't any in Belgium. So, you know, we're a long way from realizing this plan is a long yes. way. <laughs> we're going to yes. be worried just yet. Oh, my goodness. And so you said that you're going to find out about the gender aspect of environmentalism. And it's certainly something I've encountered a couple of times before, especially in conjunction with this dominated culture idea. I think it's just because, like, I follow this one particular Twitter stream, which is all about it. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, in the same way we have these hierarchies where it's okay for men to dominate women, also it's okay for humans to dominate the environment. Yeah. Right? No one can see this because the podcast oh. is here like, yes, this is what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, that's just so important. And it's actually, I'm pulling a lot from... I got really lucky with one of my advisors who also does Indigenous studies, but I'm looking so much at Indigenous literature on this, on sovereignty, on reciprocity, on this connection between, I'm going to use the word consumption because that's, I mean, at the basic level, that's what it really is, this consumption of both the feminine, whatever we understand as the feminine, and then the, the consumption of the planet and the links there, and then even the violence that we think it's okay to do then on the planet and on whatever we consider the feminine, right? They're so intertwined. And I think Indigenous communities have just so much knowledge and so much to say about this. So yeah, I'm pulling so much from there and learning so much. But yeah, I think that's so important that kind of understand. And I mean, where does this mother earth, right? Why is earth a mother? Yeah, I was gonna ask, because I mean, do you see that in the Indigenous literature you're working on as well? Is it also a mother or a feminine idea there? In many communities, it is. But what I think is really important in thinking in when we're talking about that is the fact that these are also communities where, sure, maybe jobs were separate, right? Or you have certain gendered roles when it comes to jobs. But these are also communities where their conceptions of gender are not binary, right? You have so many genders, you have so many sexualities. And also just because you are doing what may be considered, you know, a woman's work, this isn't placed on some hierarchy that's lower than whatever the man's work is and whatever it is that they're doing. This is something that exists in a circle, right? It's reciprocal. Everyone is doing for the community and it doesn't put you on this higher playing field because you're, you're, you're doing the fishing rather than, I don't know, weaving a basket or whatever it is, which I think is just so amazing and so useful and something that the rest of us have forgotten somewhere and we've somehow, I think there's just something in there about our understandings of oppression of the planet, exploitation of the planet, and then oppression, exploitation of women. And I think, yeah, even like that mother of earth language, but I think that there's a way to be able to say, you know, maybe the planet does need some mothering, right? And maybe that's okay, but maybe that doesn't have to mean that it's somehow less than the fathering, whatever the fathering of the planet would be or something like that, which is also a really interesting kind of thread when we're talking about on the ground practice when it comes to bringing gender or 
women's empowerment empowerment is the buzzword right now you know development went through that stage where they love to say the word empowerment and now we have like kind of the sustainable community love to say the word empowerment I'm guilty of using it all the time as well. I'm like, have I empowered people today? It's, it's very cheesy. <laughs> but sometimes it's really useful, right? And and I like that, you know, have you have you empowered someone today? Have you somehow provided them with some type of resource or something that they can then use to lift themselves up, right? But then it begs the question of empowerment, right? If someone is being empowered, someone's an empowerer. And what does that positionality say? Who gets to be the empowerer? And is there empowerment, whatever your understanding of empowerment may be? For example, I really like Andrea Cornell's work there, but is there an empowered before an empowerer enters? So is there in this village on the ground where they're working um, in forestry, let's say in Nepal in forestry, is there something that's empowering happening already? Or is it not until some well-funded NGO enters the space that now empowerment is happening. So it's really interesting when we think about that. And we can think about that when we're talking about other types of conflicts in the space as well, or going back to thinking about peace building. Is there a capacity for peace before some outside peacemaker comes in or something like that? So again, thinking about kind of positionalities and hierarchies all the time. Mm. And so I'm wondering, I mean, From your work so far, do you think it's possible in principle to tackle these big problems, including social conflict, without taking on gender hierarchies? No, I don't. I really don't. I think think gender permeates so deeply, so much of all of the spaces where we understand conflict to exist. One, in the lived experiences of people, but then also in the mindsets of even the most well-meaning mediators, organizers, practitioners, there is some bias that has to be constantly checked and we have to work on that. We have to be conscious of it. I know even coming into some of my dissertation work, right? Thinking about gatekeepers in some of these communities. So for example, in the DRC, you have this really great project actually that World Wildlife Fund is doing where they're looking at um, teaching women how to make sustainable cook stoves. So reducing the amount of coal and reducing the amount of deforestation that's happening. But to get into these communities, you have to go through gatekeepers, which are male. And coming from a very Western standpoint, you're like, I don't like this. You know, why do I have to go (laughs) do this? Like, let's tear it all down and rebuild it differently. But you have to really think about the fact that, okay, this is my positionality. This is how I understand what empowerment or what gender equality is supposed to look like. But that's not necessarily the understanding in the community I'm looking at. These women may not understand their positions to be lower or less than. It may be very much so that that's just that man's job as gatekeeper, right? And I, as whatever position I hold in this village as a woman, am responsible for education, maybe. And those things are both really important, but they're just differently important and they exist on different planes. Um, So going back to thinking about indigenous structures and how not everything needs to be a hierarchy, right? We can exist on the same plane, doing different things for a common goal and still have respect for what the other person is doing. So yeah, I think gender is everywhere, right? We We can't escape it, unfortunately. We can't escape the binaries that exist. We can't escape the fact that, I mean... In Spanish, right, I'm sitting on a chair because a chair is a household object and then I have to say la, it's feminine because, you know, it's a passive object. It doesn't do anything. 
our language is permeated with the idea of the feminine and the masculine. So I don't really think that there's any, any practice or kind of policy that doesn't include gender, that doesn't have a gender lens or that isn't gender aware that really can be transformative in these spaces. And especially when you're thinking about spaces that are wrapped already by some form of oppressive force, whether that be a missile was launched from here, so we cleared out all your farmland. Like there's oppression, that's an oppression that's happening there. Um, but there's just so many layers of that. And I think gender always has to be one. And is it then that gender always has to be a lens or are there specific actions we should be taken? And I mean, I'm kind of wondering, because from what you're saying, I'm hearing that we can work usefully on gender within our own societies and within our own microcultures, but it might be inappropriate to do gender work elsewhere. I wouldn't say that I think it's inappropriate or not worth doing gender work in other spaces. I just think that's where we really need to elevate local voices, which is another, I mean, if we're thinking about feminist methodologies, that's huge, is this elevation of the idea of what we consider an expert. So an expert is not, you know, you or I that went through PhD programs, right? An expert may be the woman who has lived next to this particular field, for decades and knows the best way to rotate these crops. She is then the expert on this field. And coming in with an environmental NGO, I need to be able to say, well, okay, this local voice actually knows more about this issue than I do. And I think bringing in kind of those feminist methodologies into these spaces and just being really open to conversation and open to not being the expert that you might think that you are is how you are able to do that work and how you're able to do something transformative. You've actually just reminded me of an experience that I had at one point, I went and spent a week with an Indigenous group in the Colombian Amazon. I have never been so conscious of my privilege. I also never noticed how white I was until I was swimming <laughs> in the Amazon. It just goes like, wow, I am a ghost. Um, but I had this really interesting experience where I was there and, you know, you go and hang out with the locals and some of the women in this particular case are trying to show me how to weave. Like It was basically like a friendship bracelet, right? And I sucked at it. Honestly, I was so bad at it. And they, they were all laughing. They're like, this is way easier than university. I was like, you're so wrong. This is way harder. Like, you know, you're definitely the experts here. And I think, but in that conversation, it was still mutual respect, I would say, because like, it wasn't a hierarchy. It's like, oh, we're doing different things. And that's, that's totally fine. And very funny in this case, because honestly, I'm so bad at weaving. You, you don't even know. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you came in as the expert of university. Like, let everybody know how the bureaucracy in your school works. Like, this is what I had to do, right? But they definitely had the, well, listen, Laura, that's looking like something I can't even explain or describe to you right now. So let me help you. And that's okay. And that is a feminist methodology. Like that is what feminism can bring to these spaces, not just academic spaces, but social spaces and practitioner spaces is saying like, we're all experts in different things. And taking expert, that term off of the pedestal that we've put it on, it's not making it so exclusive, right? Kind of just broadening our understanding of which kind of knowledges are important. And I mm. think that sometimes that's the difficult part of bridging spaces, whether it's an academic space into a practitioner space or a practitioner space into a local space, is that understanding of we're co-producing knowledge at that point. And 
all of these different kinds of knowledges are all important if we are going to get at roots of conflict or if we are going to reconcile different groups. So yeah, I think that feminist methodology, like gender lenses, yes. <laughs> I mean, as, as I'm sure you've gathered, I'm all about the gender lens as well. But I mean, one thing I'm wondering as you're saying this though, you're talking about taking, being an expert off the pedestal. I mean, that's also the kind of thing that anti-vaxxers say, right? They're like, oh, what do these doctors know? Them and their fancy university, I have my own knowledge. And so where do I actually draw the line? And I'm just wondering, I mean, maybe it's just that we take experts off the pedestal, but expertise is still something to appreciate. Yes. No, I think that wording is a lot better. Yes, I think that. And I think that's why I kept backtracking to kind of knowledges, right? That, that bodies of yeah. knowledge are still extremely important and should be respected. You know, evidence-based, like this woman lived next to this field for decades. She has evidence that this is the best crop rotation. I think having evidence-based bodies of knowledge and a mutual respect for that production of knowledge and understanding that knowledge can be produced from various positionalities is what's really important. Um, you don't need to be in our ivory tower of academe to have specific knowledge about this field that this woman has lived next to for decades. So I think it's more taking into context this evidence-based pool of knowledge is something that's bigger than we might think it is, but not necessarily that it should be taken on a whim. This is, you know, again, evidence-based, backed by narratives and histories, but that is also knowledge, right? That's, that's important. It may not be in a textbook, but these oral stories about planting a certain bean next to a certain type of corn because they are friends that had meaning. There's something there that's important, right? That friendship has fed generations. Cute, actually. I love that. <laughs> it's like a little cute book. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, those things, those things still matter and that's still knowledge and that's still worth sharing. And that's still worth building programs and policies around. And so, so yeah, I think let's keep expertise and something that's important and matters, but maybe just change what we understand an expert to be. I mean, the last thing I wanted is for us to finish this podcast and firstly, you know, have allegations you were kidnapping pandas and also against vaccines. Like that's not the situation yes, we wanted. Yeah. So thank you for clarifying. Yeah. And so how then can we ensure that inclusion in conflicts or otherwise isn't being done in a quick fix way, to use your words? Yeah, um, I think... I'm going to go back to feminist methodologies. Wendy Harcourt actually has a recent edited volume that talks about using feminist methodologies in the school because she has PhD and MA students who are using these talking about it. So I think kind of being okay with practicing methodologies is really important. I think elevating voices is extremely important. And we want to do this in a way that isn't so kind of the battle we have, right, is coming into these spaces, into these conversations and not being like, oh, yeah, I am the only source of empowerment or I am the savior, right? We want to do away with those very patriarchal savior complexes. So it's really about kind of creating spaces where we can talk and where we can have women's voices ring clear and where we actually take those things into consideration. So we have instances and reports of doing this in a bad way, right? Of saying, okay, here's three chairs at this table. We're going to talk about peace, put three local women in there and like move on. We did this gender thing. 
rather than getting an actual idea of, oh, well, this woman was involved in negotiating, getting this set of cows back from this side of the conflict line. So she obviously has some skills here. She is the type of person to have at this table. And actually being willing to do this kind of research and work and taking individual identities seriously, individual skills seriously. And then when women speak, not the nod politely and, you know, oh yeah, great, cute. But taking those (laughs) actual words coming out of women's mouths seriously. And I think it's really about Yeah, those voices, including those voices in a way that is actually meaningful and transformative, but also just creating spaces where, and I know like buzzword safe spaces, ew, cringe, but like (laughs) reality, you know. Tell us what you really think. (laughs) You know, like creating spaces that are actually safe for sharing information. But I think even before you can do any of that, though, it has to be a mindset shift. It has to be a, maybe not a burning of the patriarchy because we're not there yet, but we have to individually. One of my t-shirts would say otherwise. <laughs> well, I mean, we got on Zoom. My, my Zoom screen says, you know, destroy the patriarchy, not the planet. That's life motto right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that could be the, the name of your dissertation. Okay. That was brilliant. Just that might, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Acknowledgement. That one time Laura told me the title of my dissertation, (laughs) but no, seriously. Yeah. (laughs) That mindset of saying like, you know, all identities matter and we don't have to continue to perpetuate a society where gender exists on this hierarchy, where we only understand gender to exist in a binary, where sex and gender mean the same thing, where gender is synonymous with women and girls. Like these are such problematic practices, but you have to, at this point, and and it's sad to say, but you have to make that individual decision and choice to say, yeah, no, not me. I'm not going to approach this that way. And I think for practitioners working in the conflict space, like that is a decision they have to make going in. Are my policies, does my questionnaire, just my questionnaire when I'm going in and talking to people, does this account for all of these different forms of violence and identity that could have happened in this space. And maybe that means we have to be more imaginative and creative, which I think the world could benefit from anyways. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a, like a shift then that has to happen in mindset that has to mean that we are all willing to be a little bit more creative. So look, Brianna, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fantastic, as I knew it would be, and I'm glad I harassed you on Twitter until you agreed to come on. Thank goodness. <laughs> I had a great time. Of course. And so for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? Um, so Twitter is always a great space. So it underscore Brie Hernandez one. Also, if you just type in Brianna and Hernandez in Google Safari, whatever it is you use, my website will pop up. Don't judge the very old professional picture that is on the on the home screen. I have not taken a new one. I'm sure that'll be. They'll write you off, you know. They'll hear this podcast go, wow, she knows what she's talking about. Then they'll see your photo and go, you know what, maybe Like, no. oh, no, never, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, the website has links to teaching resources, publications, and all of my various social media, which does, yes, sometimes end up populated with pandas or manatees or whatever, you know, animal of the day. Perfection. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no one's going to complain about that. So, you know, you, you scare them away the professional photo, you bring them back in with the pandas. So I think it's still balanced out. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.